turn our attention to to focusing to learn, but uh, what a great opportunity to to extend a hand of fellowship. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 is where we're looking this morning. The topic is sin, and the title is The Enemy Within. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, we live in a culture and in a society where we are bombarded with an attitude of blame shifting. Blame shifting is going on all around us all the time. Not just in the church in specific issues of sin and being confronted and blaming and interactions. I'm talking on a macro scale. People don't want to take responsibility for anything, whether it's in their employment or whether it's uh, opportunities to you know, try to give a lawsuit for something that really they should take responsibility for. It, we live in this sort of you know, cheap lawsuit um, environment where people just want to not take responsibility. It's blame shifting. It's, it's the whole pop psychology generation where we're blaming all kinds of things for why we do what we do. We have bad attitudes or bad tempers because we're Irish, right? Or because, you know, or because I, I had a bad hair day. People don't even, they don't even blame, you know, their hairstyle on anything but a the day or the way that they woke up that morning. You know, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed and that's, that's why things are going wrong for me. That's why I'm, you know, I have my nose out of joint because of this or that. Or what about this one? That guy, he, he always makes me so angry. Really, really, is, is the person making you be angry? Well, that's just part of how we talk about life and view life oftentimes because that's how our culture thinks. Psychology, it, it sort of, it pumps this mindset of, of how we have unmet needs or repressed memories or a lack of self-esteem and that can drive the way that we feel about our lives or, or even it can tempt us not to see the sin in our lives that we need to deal with. I'm not saying that we're not influenced by our upbringing or our parents or hurt by past situations or scenarios or even, you know, if you're Irish, I mean, I understand. But what I'm saying is, is that is that we need to also, first and foremost, think biblically about what sin is and define our situations in terms of biblical terms and principles. And the topic we're talking about this morning is sin. Sin can sound like a very discouraging topic, and sin is always discouraging. But when we place the appropriate blame on ourselves for our sins, then there's grace to follow, right? And so this is a message that leads us right to our communion time at the end. Because our communion, the elements of the bread and the cup, represent grace. The grace of the cross and the gospel. And so first we're going to talk about sin. And then we're going to talk about grace. The context of James, as I've been talking about for several weeks, is this is an early church of Jewish Christians. They were still connected to their Jewish heritage, but they had embraced Christ. And it made them stand out as a people of God because they were claiming Jesus as the Messiah and their families were kicking them out of their homes and they were losing their opportunity for work and for 
taking care of themselves and they were oftentimes ostracized out of Palestine. So they were suffering and hurting and they were being oppressed even by the rich, as this book talks about. And so they were in need of encouragement and they were needing to see these trials that God was putting in their lives as an opportunity to be strengthened and to grow and to be more like Christ through trials or through storms in their lives. But verse 13 takes a subtle turn. And verse 13 is where James begins to talk about how a trial can become a personal temptation. How pressure that God allows to come onto your shoulders externally can suddenly spark something within us where we attitudinally shift our focus. And we move from saying, God, you're in control of the pressure that's coming down on me, that's growing me, and you shift in your attitude to say, why in the world is this going on? And now I'm going to sin in my heart because I don't like the circumstances or the storm I am going through. That's what James is talking about. The word here for temptation is the same word that he's used in the first few verses for trial. It's the same Greek word, parodsmos. Parasmos. When we encounter verse 2 or we meet trials of various kinds, trials is the same word that James is using here in verse 13 when he says, let no one say when he is tempted. Temptation. Same word. But a very subtle and dramatic difference is taking place with the use of this word. It's where we view a trial as a good thing from God to something that we begin to burn about in our hearts and begin to even say, God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Where we can begin to blame God. And so James wants to curtail that. He wants to check that attitude, hold it in check and call us to not blame God for when things are going wrong, even things are going wrong in our hearts. Verse 12 talks about remaining steadfast under trial and receiving the crown of eternal life. And that's how he wants us to think about trials. But along the way, as you journey towards heaven, you can be sidetracked by your own heart, where you begin to become your own worst enemy. Am I relating to anybody here? Do you understand the, the, the cesspool that goes on in our hearts? of sin as we begin to tempt ourselves. Matthew 6.13 is where Jesus said that we should pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this passage is clearing up exactly what Jesus meant. God in no way ever has a motive to put us into sin. He never causes us to sin. He never even puts us in environments with the motive that we would sin. And so what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer is, Lord, don't lead me in situations where I personally could possibly sin. That's what he's talking about. It's God never leading us into sin, but God, please, Lord, lead me away from my own sin. That's what it means to pray, Lord, lead me not into sin. Temptation. It's the heart cry that we all have. It's, it's Romans chapter 7 where Paul said, The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? God, help me. Save me from myself. Right? 
In this passage, Satan is conspicuously absent. He's not here as James begins to introduce the topic of sin. Is Satan the tempter? Absolutely. Is he involved in our temptations? I believe he is. James 4 says we're to resist the devil and he will what? Flee from us. But he's starting here at the deepest level, going to the root of our heart issue, which is that we are sinners. We have the enemy within. I borrowed that title from an author named Chris Lungard, who has rewritten much of John Owen's works in contemporary language. John Owen wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. The enemy within. That's what we're battling. So uh, if you want an outline, sinners blame one of two sources for sin. They blame one of two sources. And you say, didn't we just talk about how a lot of people blame shift and blame all kinds of things? Everything from pop psychology to their upbringing, to the government, to their boss and to their spouse. Why are you saying people only blame themselves or God? Because that's what James says here. There's really only two sources for sins, sin, where people blame. And the first source where people blame their sin on is blaming God. And that's verse 13. And this is, by the way, irresponsible. It's irresponsible. It's blaming God and it's irresponsible. Look again at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. Stop right there. This phrase, I am being tempted by God, is all-encompassing. It is where we blame God either directly for our sin or sinning, or, watch this, indirectly for our sinning. And I pull this out of one little preposition, and that is the preposition by by God. Let no one say when, when you're struggling and you're sinning that it was God's fault, even indirectly. The word by there is the word apa, and that is distinguished from the Greek word hupa. If it was hupa God or by God, hupa God, then it would be a direct influence from God. And James would be saying, look, Let no one say that God is directly influencing you, causing you to sin. That's not what he's talking about. James is saying, let no one say when you're tempted that you're being tempted indirectly by God. See, now I'm beginning to meddle here, and I'll tell you why. Because we sin in this way all of the time. The indirect blame on God. In other words, when we blame other people or other circumstances or other situations or our own DNA, we're indirectly blaming God for why we do what we do. And James is saying, look, don't go there. Don't say that the source of your sin or your bad response to your trial is God's will for your life. I think oftentimes we sort of let ourselves off the hook from this verse and say, you know, I guess it could get so bad in my life, my child dies or spouse passes away, that I could come to the place where I'd shake my fist at God and say, why did you allow this to happen to me? I mean, that happens. And maybe that's, you know, what James is addressing. And so I really don't need to think about that for my life. But this is a lot more pervasive of a sin. This thing has a wide scope in terms of application because every time that we are not exercising faith through a trial, 
Every time that we are not considering our trials in terms of a deep-seated faith where we're going, God, help my unbelief. I want to consider it all joy. When we're not there, we're doing this. Every time you grumble or complain about your issues, that's blaming God indirectly. That as opposed to verse 14, which it says, but each person is tempted or sins when he's lured and enticed. Here's another preposition, by his own sin. That preposition, by, is the hoopah preposition, which is saying that when we are enticed and we are lured to sin, that is directly from our own hearts. And that is distinct from what James is talking about in verse 13. Blaming God for God just indirectly allowing things to happen to us. And we get upset about that and we complain about that. And that's what James is confronting. Does that sound familiar as well? It's a common sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's common to man to sin in this way. This is a common temptation. Such is common to man. It's very similar to the temptation Uh, regarding evangelism and the sovereignty of God, where we rationalize away our design to evangelize people, the command to evangelize people, the, the command to get out of our comfort zone and talk about Jesus with other people. We rationalize that away because we say God's in control, and so he's got that. That's kind of an indirect path to disobedience, isn't it? Where we just kind of fall asleep on God when we should be obeying. It's the same kind of thing here. He doesn't want indirect disobedience. Here's here's an example. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Remember Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden and God confronted them directly. They knew that they were naked and they were ashamed, so they were hiding from the Lord. Probably Jesus himself is walking through the garden. And in verse 11 it says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The man, Adam, said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Do you see the indirect blaming of God in that verse? It's the woman that you gave me that caused me to sin in this way. And so he's not directly saying, God, you did this. He's saying indirectly, you gave me her and I did this. So it wasn't my fault. He's blame shifting. But Eve sinned as egregiously as Adam did in verse 13. It says, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You can say, look. Adam's sin was was worse than Eve's here. Adam was blame shifting, actually mentioning God's name and saying, you gave me this woman and that's why I did it. But Eve, I would say, was sinning in the exact same way by indirectly mentioning God by saying the serpent was the one that drew me into this whole problem. In other words, God, you allowed for this whole thing to happen. It's not my fault. Israel sinned in the same way. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Do you remember that Israel, when they were walking through the wilderness trying to get to the promised land, that they were there for 40 years and that 23,000 people fell in one fell swoop under God's wrath and judgment because they were disobedient? Do you remember that? But do you also know that it should have only taken them 11 days from Egypt to get to Kadesh Barnea, which is right 
at the foot of Canaan where they would cross over Jordan to take it over. Deuteronomy 1-2 says it should have taken 11 days. But through the course of their journey, round and round in the wilderness, they were exposing a grumbling and complaining spirit. And if we were to trace through Exodus 15 and 16 and 17, you would see again and again that they were saying to Moses and Aaron, I'm thirsty. Would that we have died back in Egypt, you know, or or that we were still back there with our meat pots, right? So we could eat and feed our our flesh, but we're thirsty and we're hungry and, and we're struggling here. And they would accuse Moses and Aaron of doing something wrong. Who were they really accusing when they grumbled? The Lord, the Lord. They were holding up their prophets in animosity, but really what they were doing was they were they were not exercising faith. In Numbers 14, 2 and 29 is where uh, Israel again was on the foot of going into the promised land and they were complaining and grumbling again. Numbers 14, you might turn over there. This is where they're fearing for their own personal safety. It says, all of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Verse three, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Who were they complaining to first? Moses and Aaron. And then it shifts. It goes deeper and they're exposed in verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? That's what's really the sin beneath the sin when we grumble and complain. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trusting God even when life hurts. Which is the title of a book by Jerry Bridges. It's blaming God. We do it all the time. You say, those nasty children of Israel people, how could they be so, you know, sin-sick and shriveled up in their souls? But when we need resources, when you're thirsty, you start grumbling and complaining. When you don't feel physically safe or you find out that you've got an illness that's not curable or something horrible happens... We're quick to grumble, and we might not speak the words against the Lord, but in our hearts, we're lacking faith, and it's a way that we are indirectly blaming God. You see? This is what James is confronting. It's where we are becoming practical atheists in the midst of suffering. And instead of embracing the struggle, we internalize and turn to sinful words and thoughts towards the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 10 is kind of a recap on the whole mess that the children of Israel were in. And Paul said, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did when they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then verse 12, take heed, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. By the way, Unbelievers sin in this way as well. Unbelievers, uh, even though they do not have Christ or have not been transformed by faith in Christ, they still have a knowledge of God. Ecclesiastes says that they have eternity set in their hearts. Genesis account talks about how man and man and woman, we are made in the image of God. So we have a knowledge of God through creation even before we believe. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God, how creation day to day is speech from God about who he is. 
Romans chapter 1 says God's invisible attributes are streaming through the creation. And so people are accountable because they know God. Romans 2 talks about how we have a conscience. We know the difference between good and evil because the law of God is written on our hearts before we're saved. And Romans 1 talks about how people, even who are in a spiritual spiraling down digression from bad to worse, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're taking the truth, putting it in a box, putting a top on it and sitting on it. And so they too are accountable And when they grumble and complain, when you see people out in your work environment grumble and complain and and not speak well of their life, you know what they're doing? They're blaming God. Even if they claim to be agnostics, even if they claim to be of a different religion, they're blaming this God, the God of the Bible. That's what's going on. Well, it's irresponsible to do it. But is the Lord going to ultimately hold every man, woman, and child responsible Yes. And when God's grace covers men, women, and children, they come into heaven. But everyone is responsible. And it's irresponsible to blame God for our sins. Secondly, it's impossible to blame God for our sins. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Ultimately, because God has nothing ever in any kind, shape, form, or fashion to do with sin. He has nothing in common with sin. He has no experiential knowledge of sin. I mean, he, he knows sin. He knows what it is. He's going to judge sin. But God, as 1 Timothy 6 says, dwells in unapproachable light with whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is ensconced in holiness. He is enthroned in heaven and separated from sinfulness. That's what the word holy means. It means to be separated. It's as if you have a a fortress that's surrounded by a moat of light and holiness when you think about the Lord. 1 John 1.5 says God is what? Light. And in him there is no darkness at all whatsoever. God cannot have an impure motive. He cannot. It is utterly impossible. You say, well, Jesus said all things are possible with God. Well, God has willed for himself not to be impure. So God's will overrides that possibility and makes it, renders that impossible. His nature renders any sin coming to him as utterly impossible. It's different than the Greek pantheon of gods. And I don't know if you've read mythology, but... Always mythology is more about how people act than how God really acts because these man-made gods, though they're claiming to be immortal and they were put on a pedestal and actually worshipped, the the stories of each of them are ones where they ultimately concede in a fleshly way and entice people to sin. And so they're more like the, the creature than the true God. God is different than those deities that were created. Well, it's not only irresponsible to blame God, it's impossible to blame God. Here's the third category. It's illogical to blame God. Now, God, again, he tests people. He brings trials into people's lives. We know the story of Abraham where he was tested by God to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. You know that story from Genesis 22. And ultimately, Abraham passed the test. 
God's heart behind that test was always for Abraham to pass the test. It was not a setup for Abraham to fall. God will never put more on you than he puts in you to bear up under a trial. He will strengthen you in the inner man to get through any test that he has brought into your life. Jesus, for example, was tested by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the devil was, his motive was to draw Jesus into sinfulness. But God's motive for allowing that to happen was for Jesus to reign supreme over the devil and all creation. For him to be affirmed as the rightful sacrificial lamb for our sins because he is perfect. You say, doesn't all of this sort of bring up the whole problem of evil thing? You know, where did evil come from in the first place if God is completely in control of all things that have ever happened and take place? The Jewish rabbis struggled with that and they ultimately, some of them, wrote of God actually repenting for having evil created and causing evil in the first place. Well, that's not true. The Bible actually does not answer the problem of evil. Logically, you cannot answer the problem of evil. Our minds can't ultimately grasp where evil came from if God is in control of and has created everything. But I'll say this, the more that you get to know the God of Scripture and the more that you trust what the truth says about good and evil, the more you realize that the problem of evil is not a problem with God at all. He's not confused. God has allowed for evil to be born, and and the Scripture traces the earliest birth point to Satan's heart. He did allow that. And probably the best explanation of why it is there or why it's continuing to manifest itself in creation is God has allowed for evil to run its total course through history so he ultimately could snuff it out for his own glory. But the Bible really doesn't go any farther than that. But God is not confused about the problem of evil and we should trust his heart that he is perfect and evil has not touched him and does not come from him. He's not tempted and neither does he tempt. Well, the first source that we often blame for why things go wrong in our hearts and in our lives and why we sin is we're blaming God, even indirectly. Well, the second source and where we should place the blame is found in verses 14 and 15. That's where we should blame ourselves. Where does the evil come from? Our own hearts. Remember the title, the enemy is within. This, first of all, is rational. It's rational. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is fishing language, okay? And I'm glad that I've fished a few times since I've been in Alaska so I can kind of relate to the, to the moment here. Mike Barnes, uh, one of our members, he and Sarah typically come, I believe, first hour. But I was with them and with uh, Kieran Weber and some others. I think we were in some boats at Beluga, and we were out pike fishing. And it was kind of a fun time, actually, because Mike was in charge of the girls' boat. I believe the girls outfished just about 20 to 1 fish. It got pretty sad. I got the first fish on the line before we went into the back bayou, and I thought, well, this is going to be a great day. And you know how that goes. You have your first bite, and I think I might have, might have reeled it in. It might have jumped off right before I got in the boat, and things dried up in a hurry for me. 
But I was watching Mike because he's a really good fisherman. And what he did is he took the lure, which was a shiny lure, and put it on, you know, on the string. And he said, cast it just a foot in front of the reeds as we're going down the bayou together. And he says, give it a little yank and then let it alone. You know, my temptation, a sanctified sportsman-like temptation, is, still, is to yank it and you know, try to continue to manipulate it to get that fish on the hook. He said, just give it a little yank and then sit there. And you might wait even for several minutes, but that pike is in the reeds with its teeth, peering at that shiny lure and wanting to chomp. And as soon as he believes that that is food, he goes for it. And that fish is rendered helpless. And they, you know, they fight a little bit in the water. They're just more impressive to look at, right? 17, 18, 21-inch fish, right? This is my sanctified bragging on how big the fish were that we caught and pulled in the boat. However, um, a lot of fish... But they're really pretty helpless once they get inside, not really flopping around. And it's a picture of our own hearts. Inside each one of us, we have inbuilt lures. We do. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That means, that's Jeremiah 17, 9. That means that we are lying to ourselves all the time. You know, two sins that go hand in hand, the sin of sexual immorality or pornography and lying. They go hand in hand. They do. We, we, we sin in ways and we rationalize. And so what our hearts will do is it will create this lure where it's saying to us, where we're talking to ourselves, and it's saying what you're doing is not going to be that bad. It's, it's not going to have a bad consequence. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to hurt your spiritual life. And so you go, oh, okay, I'm going to kind of get hypnotized by that and grab onto it. And then you get hooked. And it goes further and saying that we are not only lured, we bait ourselves, but we are enticed. We're enticed. That's the word dragging, which again is fishing language. It's the idea that you're hooked and then you're being dragged by what you've hooked yourself with. And so the sin process starts and you're being drawn further and further into your sin. Have you ever lied and then had to cover it up and find yourself covering it up? And one lie leads to the next. This is that dragging away process where you're getting deeper and deeper mired into your sin. And then ultimately, verse... 14 goes on to say he's enticed or dragged by his own desire. The word desire there is epithumia. That's a burning passion. And it's the idea that our passions fuel the sin. We're we're baiting ourselves. We're following after the sin. And then we even fuel it. And we say, well, listen, instead of repenting and being shocked and horrified by what's going on in my heart, I'm going to pump it up even more. And I've already gone there, so I'm going to go even further. And you kick it into... overdrive. The rabbis used to talk about this struggle in the heart and they would struggle with it greatly and they called it, you know, the good versus the evil, the yasar hata versus the yasar hara, which is this battle inside of us, this inner impulse. But I want to say that, you know what, it's really not as much a battle as much as it is a total depravity that we are struggling with where even our best motives are tainted and tempted by our own sin. Proverbs 5 and 7 talks about enticement, doesn't it? How the man is enticed by the strange woman or the harlot. How the man is viewed as peering through the lattice work. 
And he's, he's lured, not, not really by the woman as much as his own heart being drawn for that woman. And she lures him with her eyes and with the smooth words that are like honey. And, and, and ultimately, he's dragged away by her like a, like a bull led to a slaughter. And he's reduced to being the price of a loaf of bread in that moment. Ultimately, it talks about him giving his strength over to a woman. But what he's done is he has sinned in his own heart. He's sinned in his own heart and he fuels it with epithemia, desire, and passion. This word for enticement is also used for false teachers who use smooth language and in sensuality to draw people out away from Christ. This is a big warning, isn't it? This is what we need to repent of. And not just once, but ongoingly. And positively, we need to consider our trials as joy. Because when you stop considering your trials as joy, that creates the theater for temptation. You know, they talk about war as sort of stepping into a theater zone. Well, it's like you're, you're leaving your, your armored vehicle or your tank and you're walking out into the theater in a helpless way when you stop bearing up under a trial and you begin to internalize and blame your circumstances or directly blame God. And it will eat your lunch. It will make you worse and worse off and will damage your relationship. Well... It's important that we are rational, that we are rational to blame ourselves for our sins. And then secondly, blaming ourselves is responsible. This is taking responsibility for our sin. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The picture or word picture changes from sort of the bait and the lure and and the fishing illustration to... An illustration of three generations from parent to child to grandchild. A parent who conceives, a child who is born, and then a grandchild who is ultimately born from that child. And you can see it here because you have conception, and then you have birth to sin, that is the child. And then you have the sin which is fully grown, and then that gives birth to death. It brings forth death. The picture in general is this. Once you sin, there is an unbreakable, unstoppable cycle that will lead to death. Sin always brings death. Always. It is always the ultimate consequence to our sin. And you say, well, what is death here? One commentator said death is left in undefined in all of its terrifying ways. It's this all-encompassing sort of um, final judgment on sin. Sin will always bring death. Death is the word for separation. And for those who do not place their faith in Christ, this side of eternity, for those people who do not have the living faith that the book of James describes, they will face eternal separation from God. They have a present, ongoing separation from God as they are in sin, blaming God for their sins. And then they will be eternally damned, eternally separated from God. 
For believers, our separation was taken by Christ on the cross. Was there death for your sin? Was there death for the sins that you are committing now? Yes, it was borne by Christ on the cross. That's why we, we celebrate the Lord's table. That's why we do it aggressively. That's why we do it consistently. That's why we love the gospel, because it blows our minds. When we face, we come face to face with the enemy that's inside of us, how glorious does the gospel become? It's everything. When we face our sins, because we know that the consequence for sin is death, and we're so grateful that the death payment was paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this verse a little bit in detail. It says, Then desire, this epithemia, this burning sin that we're following after, it conceives, it gives birth to sin, a sin habit or a pattern in our lives. And then sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth. Let's stop there. The words bring forth here, according to uh, William Barclay, are animal-like words. It's the idea of animals being spawned or born. And he likens this to the fact that once you are given over to sin in this way, that you become animal-like and condemned toward death. Verse 15 is a sort of parallel in contrast to verse 12. In verse 12, the believer who remains steadfast under trial, the believer who is vindicating that they truly had living faith this side of eternity, they're the ones who are affirmed in heaven and receive the crown of life, right? Well, in verse 14, by contrast, in 15, this is a person who ultimately is locked up in their own sins and unwilling to repent, unwilling to exercise saving faith, And so they earn for themselves death. Either the crown of life, affirmation in heaven, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Go into outer darkness. Experience eternal death. It's a sobering word, it is. And let's sort of summarize with some take-home points. First of all, sin... And this is not my definition. This is the definition of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's good to memorize. It's a good definition, good for children to know. It's any lack of coming up to what it means to live for Christ or transgression of where we actually cross the line of what God says for us not to do. That's all sin, but we need to go deeper than this definition because sin is happening on the heart level. It's part of the core of who we are. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And if you really soak that verse in and begin to read every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, you realize that that is a a really pervasive example and definition of how sinful we could really be in this life. That is a description of the people of this world who were to be judged by God destroying the earth with flood water. Ultimately, you know that things are going to get this bad again in our culture and in our society, and it's, getting, it's going from bad to worse, and it's setting our world, world, world up again to be destroyed by fire. Number two. Passively blaming God for why your life is hard is a sure way of keeping your life hard. 
It's a run-on sentence, but it's on purpose. Passively blaming God. If you succumb to grumbling and complaining as the general tenor of your life, your life will be hard. Because your life is really defined by your experience and your heart, right? And instead of having joy and peace, it's angst. Your circumstances might not change. They might get worse. But your faith in God will make the difference in your life. Number three, sin always produces death or separation. Unbelievers bear present and eternal separation. Believers will never bear present or eternal separation. Right? Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Christ consumed all our sins and their consequences on the cross. I'd invite all of you to bow your heads at this time. For a time of examination, I just want you to take a little time to think about your heart and your life before the Lord and seek Christ's forgiveness based on the cross as we approach the Lord's table.